I acknowledged that this podcast is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh nations, where I am lucky to work, live and play. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Everything Economics. I'm your host, Tali Murdoch, and we'll be continuing to talk about healthcare today as part of the larger series. In particular, I am going to discuss what system or model, public or private, is best, measured by a number of different categories. Before listening to this, I do recommend you go back to part one and part two of this series if you haven't already for some background. Thinking back to part one of this series, it's important to recall how money flows through each different model and the influences each model has to answer to. In short, a public system essentially answers to the public and patients, while a private system answers to shareholders, boards of directors, pharmaceutical companies, medical staff and patients. In both cases, there will be regulatory bodies to answer to as well. I found a great paper that was essentially a lit review of a plethora of studies done in low and middle income countries that compared the performance of private and public healthcare systems. This paper used the six World Health Organization parameters to measure health outcomes. When it came to accessibility and responsiveness, so who actually has access to healthcare and how timely they can access the care they need, It was found that a large portion of outpatient services in low and middle income countries were provided by the private sector. This sector was also found to mostly serve affluent populations, so those with higher incomes and status. Another interesting find was that both wealthy and poor families received more care from that private sector than the public sector, but only when private drug shops were included. When drugs were not part of the private system, and there were only healthcare personnel, the public sector provided the majority of care as they are not incentivized by profits from drug sales. While wait times were found to be consistently shorter in the private sector than that of the public sector for patients, it is important to ask shorter for whom. For example, in Sri Lanka, over 25% of childhood immunizations were provided by the private sector. However, it provided 72% of immunizations among the wealthiest quartile and only 3% to the poorest quartile. Now, I don't know exactly how much money is spent on private healthcare in some of the countries analyzed, though OECD data from 2017 to 18 has voluntary healthcare spending ranging from as low as 63 US dollars in India to 486 dollars in South Africa, who were included in this study. But I do believe the same principles of resource diversion discussed in parts one and two would apply here as well. Following accessibility and responsiveness, quality of healthcare delivered by each system was assessed. Overall, it was found that diagnostic accuracy and adherence to medical management standards were worse in the private sector than the public sector. Private practitioners had significantly worse knowledge of correct diagnosis and treatment when it came to the management of diseases like tuberculosis and malaria. Pretty big public healthcare issues that can have devastating impacts on entire communities and populations. Specifically in Nigeria, poor compliance with prescription guidelines was associated with a rise in drug-resistant malaria, 
This is the exact same concept as the evolution of superbugs that are resistant to antibiotics. More broadly, this paper analyzed data from 24 countries and found that children suffering from diarrhea were less likely to get proper oral hydration salts and rather be prescribed antibiotics in the private sector compared to the public sector. Again, I am reminded of the influence of big pharmaceutical companies here, as opposed to solely wanting a patient to recover from their ailment. Beyond this, medications and medical procedures were unnecessarily dispensed in the private sector at a higher rate, most commonly for treating diarrhea diseases and non-complicated respiratory infections. Generally, the sector stocks more oral hypoglycemic agents, but it isn't clear if they lead to better care or are just other brands to give patients and care providers quote-unquote choice. In contrast, reproductive technologies were much more widely available in the private systems, which is great. On the whole, though, it does seem that better quality of care is provided in the public sector due to public and population health programs, better education and awareness for both patients and medical practitioners, and a more direct goal to improve health outcomes for the population at large. So this does lead very nicely into patient outcomes. Quality of care considers if the care was medically accurate and appropriate, while patient outcomes refers to how the health of a patient has changed as a result of healthcare. Again, I was not surprised to learn that care received in the public sector resulted in higher rates of treatment successes for things like HIV, tuberculosis, and vaccinations. Specifically in India, analysis of 120,000 households found children receiving care in the private sector were less likely to receive measles vaccinations, a very simple way of lowering child mortality rates. Similarly, in Thailand, patients receiving care in the private sector had lower treatment rates for tuberculosis, and this was also attributed to a three to five times greater chance of being prescribed non-World Health Organization recommended treatment. Again, bringing into question the incentives felt in the private sector versus the public sector to deliver appropriate patient care. You really also have to think of all of the negative externalities that arise when the health of a wider population suffers. This is what public providers and administrators have in mind when they plan, develop policy and programs, and deliver care. The same cannot be said for a lot of the private sector. While the medical staff themselves are likely to want the best outcome for the patient possible, it is arguable that the same goes for the people who decide how the funding gets spent as represented in these patient outcomes. Now, I believe that much of this coincides with the fact that accountability, transparency and regulation is lower in the private health sectors. For starters, information and data from the private sector is limited. Having aggregate population data on health outcomes and care is critical to planning and building the best healthcare system possible. Disease notifications to the public health system for such planning was poor in the private sector compared to public providers in most countries. In many African countries, the public sector is even spending a lot of money to regulate the private sector to try and improve such things, but is having limited effectiveness as they have little influence. This is another example of perhaps not the best use of public funds for the delivery of care. Now let's discuss what I think is one of the most important considerations of the public versus private debate. 
and that is fairness and equity. Financial barriers do exist in both the private and public system, but they are consistently highest in the private sector, especially when it comes to out-of-pocket user charges. The private sector tends to serve groups with higher incomes for this reason, creating a disparity between access to care for different income levels. Classism and treatment of lower income patients also has an impact on the treatment received when these people do seek out care in the private sector, such that they have been found to receive service from less qualified practitioners with limited quality services like medication dispensing only. Poorer patients have also been straight up excluded from the private sector in South Africa, for example. In Bangladesh, a study showed that 90% of children in need of care were taken to the private sector, however children from higher income households were more often directed to a licensed practitioner and treated with oral rehydration or antibiotics than female or lower income children, which is very interesting. So even when the lower income folks are finding ways to seek private care, they are still not always treated the same as their higher income peers. Further to this, privatising existing public healthcare services can make the distribution of services even more unequal. In Tanzania and Chile, when health systems were privatised, more clinics were originally being built in areas with less need. Prior to privatisation, the public system was opening clinics in underserved areas to improve population health on a wider scale. In China, similar privatisation led to an increase in out-of-pocket expenses for patients. By 2001, half of Chinese people surveyed said they had gone without healthcare in the previous year because it was too expensive. In 2002, out-of-pocket charges accounted for 58% of healthcare spending compared to just 20% in 1978 when privatisation began. And of course, as always in these scenarios, the lower income populations are hit hardest by such systemic changes. So now that we've talked a lot about the care itself and what has better patient outcomes, Let's get to what is largely talked about by the media and other commentators in this debate. And this is what is more efficient in terms of costs, prices and procedures. Not surprisingly, prescription drugs were found to have higher costs in the private sector when compared to the same diagnostics in the public sector. This was relevant for both generic and brand name drugs. In Bangladesh, for example, the price of prescription drugs have also been growing faster than the rate of inflation, much like what is experienced in the US. Similar scenarios have occurred in Malaysia and South Africa, where medication prices have been unstable since privatisation. Think back to, for example, the influence of stock portfolios. Costs of prescription drugs being significantly lower in the public sector is likely due to generic substitutions, pre-packaging, and use of treatment protocols, whereas the private sector is accountable to pharmaceutical company profits. Similarly, in the outpatient setting, two-thirds of patients in the private sector would receive injections, compared to patients presenting with the same condition in the public sector, 
who would only receive an injection one third of the time. And we know from just before that this doesn't actually lead to better quality of care or health outcomes. In fact, the opposite. Higher drug costs have been associated with disease complications, delayed diagnosis, and incorrect disease management. But is there another reason for these high costs in the private sector? Is this sector actually contributing more to research and development of new drugs and technology that will improve healthcare in the future? If this was the case, the extra cost might make a little more sense. But unfortunately, this is not the situation we are in. Overall, government funding is more important to the development of priority review drugs, those that are the most innovative and life-changing. Government grants also fund the vast majority of underlying research that leads to medical discoveries and innovations through education. The World Health Organization also found that public sector governments contributed two-thirds of investment into product-related health research and development for neglected diseases. The other one-third was made up by philanthropies. And this is just the direct funding and impact. The grants just mentioned are indirectly impacting the healthcare system in a large way. And alas, large pharmaceutical companies also benefit from this research by taking and patenting new drugs, creating monopolies, charging absurd prices to patients and their insurers, and making millions of dollars in revenue with little concern for patient access and affordability. The fact that some drugs can be advertised across the world even little things here in Canada, I think shows just how broken private healthcare is. And research just continues to show that a well-funded and well-informed public healthcare system delivers better results for patients, workers, and the population at large. So the next time someone tells you that you have capitalism to thank for medical advances, you can let them know that it actually is not. If the resources in the private system which doesn't always follow medical protocols, charges more, and leads to worse patient outcomes, was placed into the public system, just imagine how happy and well society could become. As always, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have a better understanding of how private and public systems deliver different patient results. And I really hope for some of you that are still in favour of private healthcare, perhaps they've given you some things to think about. If you did enjoy this episode and want to support the show, please rate and review on iTunes. I would love to hear from you. Or head on over to patreon.com slash cavegoblins where you can support the network and get access to more weekly content. You can find me on Twitter at Talia Murdoch and follow the show at Every Economics for articles and threads based on the latest episodes. Thank you again for listening. Be kind to each other. I am Talia Murdoch and this has been Everything Economics. Are you a new DM? Are you an experienced DM? Doesn't matter. Listen to DMs of Vancouver for great DMing advice. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.